Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest podcast episode, number 932, with Carol Sanford about her new book entitled The Regenerative Life Transform Any Organization, Any Society, and Your Destiny. This podcast, number 932, is brought to you by Doug Reggio, author of a new book entitled So You Want to Start a Food and Beverage Business, a Pick Your Path Business Book. If you want to know more about Doug and his new book, please visit his website at www.soyouwantabook.com. That's www. So you want a book.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview with Carol Sanford about her new book entitled The Regenerative Life, Transform Any Organization, Any Society, and Your Destiny. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyson, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining us from just a little bit out of Seattle, Washington, is Carol Sanford. And Carol has a book. She's got a series of books. Everybody needs to know about Carol. I'm going to direct you to her website. This is called The Regenerative Life. And the subtitle of this book is Transform Any Organization, Our Society, and Your Own Personal Destiny. Um, This is a great book. Carol, good day to you. Thanks for being on the show, and thanks for spending a little bit of time with my listeners. Oh, I'm delighted. I love the subject of what you work on and what you've been doing in the past, so I'm glad to step into the stream of all that. Well, we're glad to have you, and with your ancestral background with your grandfather, I want to get into that. It definitely makes you somebody that uh, people need to listen to. I'm going to let our listeners, Carol, know a little bit about you. Carol Sanford is a consistently recognized disruptor and contrarian working side by side with Fortune 500 and new economy executives in designing and leading systemic business change and design. Throughout her university and in-house education offerings, global speaking platform, she's a best-selling, multi-award winning uh, author human on human development work. She works with executive leaders who see the possibility to change the nature of work through developing people and work systems and ignite innovation everywhere. For four decades, Carol has worked with great leaders of successful businesses such as Google, DuPont, Intel. P&G, seven generations, educating them to develop the people to ensure a continuous stream of innovation that continually delivers extraordinary results. Um, I could go on and on and on, but if you want to learn more about Carol, go to carolsanford.com. That's C-A-R-O-L-S-A-N-F-O-R-D.com. Well, Carol, the accolades at your website and all the things that you've done are numerous to mention, but more importantly, um, the books that you've written that have informed, educated, and inspired people are just truly um, something to be recognized. And you are the author of six books all around transforming the business culture and the individuals within the organization. 
Um, why have you gravitated to this work and why are you considered, as you said in your bio, the disruptor and contrarian? Since I was a very young child, I've been a contrarian. I was named that by my, my grandfather called me a positive contrarian. And the reason he did is he said, you, you do see clearly what it is others are not seeing, but you give them the alternative. So it's not like you're just saying you stupid, whatever, and no, you're wrong. It's like you're saying, look at it this way. And the, um, Reason I think I went into the work has something to do with the combination of my grandfather and my father combined, my maternal grandfather and, and father. My father was uh, a pretty broken human being, and he was um, uh, very racist and tried to condition me in the way behaviorists do to, to see the world the way he did. And he had a lot of power because he was a judge. My grandfather lived in the same town and hardly knew my grandfather, even when the short period of time my parents were married. But my grandfather was always asking me to forgive my father, to always talk with me about how he was doing only what he could see. And that in the world, we have to help people grow up, engage and discover how you learn to see what's beyond your eyes beyond your senses. And I think from a very young age, I wanted to help my father. That sounds strange because he was very mean. Uh, but with a grandfather who was constantly giving me a different worldview, and he, just so your listeners know, he was part Mohawk. He had grown up partly on a reservation in eastern Oklahoma. And but about the time he was 10, he was gone. But I was with him a lot when I was young, before my mother finally, I think, saved my life. Certainly our sanity, we left. So from a young age, and then wanting one of the pieces, I'll add to that. Then the question becomes, what would make a difference? All right, you want to help people wake up where? How do you do that? And I tried a variety of things. I tried being a college professor. I tried uh, and, and was a lecturer or assistant professor. I, uh, I did a lot of work with uh, business and got a master's degree and an urban planning degree. And then I suddenly realized one day, I remember waking up thinking, who has the power? Where is the power? And I decided that the thing that was creating the most destruction right now was business. And if you're going to do that, you have to go where the destruction is. You have to go where the poor thinking is. And so that's how I got in the world that I'm in. Well, I think that's a, you know, it's kind of a natural path when you look at it. Um, I would say today, one of our paths out of this uh, divisiveness that we see in the mm -hmm. world and this ability to actually change is through business. Yeah. Um, and I think what's important there is at one point we saw these corporations as destructive. Now we've seen a transformation in many of these corporations to really making the assistance to shift this world, whether it's environmentally, whether it's socially, whatever it might be. There's a lot of things good that's happening. And, you know, the co-founder of Seventh Generation, who the founder of Seventh Generation was on my podcast. He wrote a book. Yep. Um, and the forward to your book 
um, their regenerative life. Jeff stated that the work that he did with you fundamentally changed who he was and the role he played on the planet. Now, obviously, all my listeners know seventh generation is biodegradable cleaning products and all kinds of things that they make. And he is still giving back, he says, Jeff, in a form of revitalizing contribution to social and environmental causes. Uh, Rightfully so. That's what they're about. How does your work in your estimation have such a lasting effect on individuals that are awake, aware, and willing to transform their lives and their organizations? I think we uh, nowadays have been left with what I would call a humanist view of how you create change, which is go out and do good in the world, um, have yourself be a good person. And the thing I bring is a very disruptive idea to that, because probably most of your listeners, when I said they're going, yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I said the problem with do good is it depends on whose definition. All colonization has been under the guise of doing good, or not all, but a good part of it. Um, And the way we look at something is not systemic enough. And so the way I work in, and Jeff isn't the only one who said that, uh, my newest book, even after this one we're talking about, is uh, has a forward by Ahmed Rahim, who is the founder of Numiti. And um, my previous book before that has the founder of Plum uh, Organics and uh, uh, Cheryl O'Loughlin. And she said the same thing. Now, I'm going to tell you what they say about why this has such a deep lasting effect. First, I demand they do the work. I don't have any programs. I don't have any uh, templates. I don't have any belts we give people. I don't have any uh, way we say do circular and you'll get everything done or sustainability. Instead, we work on how to learn to see from different paradigms, from the world that we have lost the ability, at least for the last 100 years, uh, to see the world well. And we lost the ability to look at ourselves well. We instituted 360 in plain or ordinary feedback, and it disenabled our ability over time with so much from outside to see ourselves. And we got so we only ask and we will say, I say one of my books is no more feedback. And what it says is if we want conscious human beings who can see what's going on inside of them and make sense of it. So not get judgmental about ourselves or other people. If we can learn the skills that are taught, if you grow up in an indigenous culture, a lineage culture where you have uh, uh Buddhist teachers or Hindu teachers or Socratic teachers, you will learn a different way of seeing yourself. And now quantum physics, the cosmology has taught us that we can't actually affect the things we think we can anyway. What we have to do is work on seeing differently. So what I work on is an inner and an outer uh, idea. Uh, That was kind of That was kind of propagated by your grandfather. I mean, you know, we're going to get to a question on that, but 
And, and I appreciate that perspective because it's really the paradigm shift that needs to happen. I've had this discussion just recently with uh, Stephen Kotler on his book, The Devil's Dictionary, and, and in a podcast that just released. And, you know, he said the only thing that's really going to change the world is the individual's consciousness to have more empathy and compassion. And, and it's his belief that those are the things that will actually change the world. Now, you state that you believe that most of us grow up with a limited understanding of what it takes for us to create real change in the world. Yeah. Uh, you state that we need a better theory of change, one that goes beyond the heroic and the do-good models that you just mentioned, right? What's the new theory that releases inherent potential in every human being in your estimation. Um, you know, look, if it's not do-gooder and it's not heroic, you know, and, and you go back to, um, uh, we were, I'm thinking of uh, Joseph Campbell's, yeah. uh, you know, every story has this cycle with a do-gooder and somebody heroic and the story goes on and that's the way most things happen. Um, what is it that th- is this new theory? Uh, for in to reach this potential. Well, let me say why the heroic doesn't make sense to me. Um, it means we're all striving to be something no we think nobody can. It's a competitive kind of model for one thing, rather than every one of us can in everyday life without being a hero make a huge difference. And that's a lot of why I wrote this book. That there are some roles that you can play that are, are critical. But the theory that it's based on is, well, I, I think I'd like to today describe it in terms of how Einstein helped us see the difference between uh, Newtonian classical physics and quantum physics. And it um, the, the basic idea is that, um, Einstein said, we think of the world in terms of playing pool, where you have a pool table with pockets and we've named and picked the pockets and we figure out who's on the table. Now we're in charge of the cue stick. And we hit that ball toward the pocket we want as though we know exactly how to make it happen. That's the current theory of change. I can know what's good for you. I can place you in a spot. I can hit the right kind of action, momentum, whatever, and into the pocket go. Einstein said, nope, that's actually not, the, that's a false cosmology. The world didn't work that way. And uh, he told his students at Princeton this story and said, everything we're learning is that it's more like a matrix, like a womb that you were born in. No one could predict uh, and determine that you would be in a certain way, do certain things, have your life go in a certain direction, although the behaviorists thought they could do that by conditioning people. What's really true is you build a healthy womb. You build your own self being uh, steady and present and able to support the ecosystem and the capability that's needed in order to have that entity choose what it's needed. So the way I describe that different theory of change now is it's the difference between uh, external and internal, direct and indirect. So the pool table is all the direct, right? 
But the matrix, how you make yeah. the womb healthy or a culture in the case of a corporation or a, uh, a mindset in the case of a person, is all indirect. You build capability. Uh, my newest book talks more about this capability. And one of the things that uh, is core to it is you go beyond kindness. You go beyond compassion to caring, which is very different than um, your previous uh, person's idea. And let me say, my grandfather taught me this. He said, everyone should be kind. Everyone should be kind, a, a condition of having a body. You should have empathy. You should have compassion. But what you have to learn is caring, which means you give the matrix, you give the person the ableness to find their own way. To, and you are with them as they move and discover and let go of that we're uh, doing something that will help them the, uh, directly and producing what's direct. And so it's a, a big shift to go to caring where all my energy says, what is that person needing capability? Because I can see they're on a path. I shouldn't be in charge of their path. But if I care enough, I will make sure the matrix and the capability and the consciousness is developed. Well, your next book is called Indirect Work, and we're going to have you on to do a podcast about okay. that. And, I, and I'm and i looking forward to that, actually. When does the book release? It released March 22nd. It has been a number one Amazon bestseller for okay. one month. So it's yeah. already out. So and It's already selling like hotcakes. So I have a, a quick question. It's kind of off of the... The, it's not off the subject. It's on the subject. Okay. Um, Stephen R. M. R. Covey was just on, wrote a book called Trust yeah. and Inspire. And beautiful interview we had. And we got into this discussion of the vernacular of the term work. Yeah. You know, work has been used for as long as we can remember, but we've had a transformation now. And w- this command and control environments that you've been in, to move to a trust and inspired environment, which is the shift that is attempting to be made um, to transform the cultures of corporations. I said, work is really not the word um, that it should be used to define that. What's your feeling about that? Well, first, I don't work and I don't believe in building trust and inspire. You're seeing my contrarian, right? What I believe is really important is uh, the sophists in ancient Greece were inspirers. They stood on the soapboxes. They inspired people to be something, but they went away and couldn't do it and came back discouraged. What I believe you build is capability and give more what the Dalai Lama called instruction. That I tell people on uh, LinkedIn when they write, say, you're so inspiring. And I said, that means I'm supposed to do it, not you, right? And they said, no, no, no. And I said, well, that's what inspire means. So, and trust is in me. I don't believe, like, this whole idea of psychological safety is a, um, a pile of, I won't say what my grandfather would have said. But what it means is you keep people from growing. You build a, a, something that doesn't give them the capacity to grow themselves. Uh, and I do believe that. And I've forgotten, I'm sitting here, I kept thinking, if I keep talking, I'll remember the uh, Armenian root of the word work. We're taking the Greek one, which then was translated in 
400 years ago to mean energy. And but the original work, shoot, I wish I could remember it. Um, it but it, I know what it was about. It was more about engaging. It converting, was converting, converting. Look, we only all of us only have so much energy in a day. So right. how we expend that energy. Right. Uh, what we whatever we want to call it, right? Is, right, is what it is. You know, your book. You speak about levels of paradigm. We just talked right. about them. paradigm shift, and that's what you're about. And that they provide context for our lives and our work. Yeah, totally agreed. Because it's really how we look at anything that really determines whether or not we can have a shift in our perspective and the way in which we approach it. Can you speak with the listeners about your foundational paradigm of value return and the levels in between until we attain what you refer to as the title of this book, Regenerative Life? Right. Because you've got four levels. Right. Five. But you've got, it starts with the value and then it goes all the way to regenerative life. All right. This is a, a fairly long thing, but I'm going to do a very shorthand version. That's the great right. one because we got, so much time for the podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. Sorry about that. Um, I got the opportunity when I was, I was at UC Berkeley to sit in the lecture hall of a visiting scholar named Thomas Kuhn, who wrote the structure of the scientific revolution. And it became much the clarity of direction for my life. I was 20 years old. And he talked about this crazy idea that we shift paradigms. And we went to the Rats Keller at the end of the evening. And I said, well, how do paradigms change? Uh, what, where do they come from? And he said, all right, I give you the idea. That's your job. And it wasn't talking just to me. It was talking to 20 students. I then set out to figure out what that meant. And I was discovered, and these are ways of thinking, not ways of doing. And we're all in all of them all the time. And sometimes we have a good version, sometimes not so good. The base version is very functional. I do something in exchange for something else. And if I'm a decent human being, I want it to come out fair and equal. If not, I want more than I put in. Uh there were a group of people who could see that was driving a lot of how our country and our planet worked, or us with the planet said, wait, we've got to shift how we see it. We've got to risk, uh, shift to what I now call arrest disorder, slow down the mess we make, do less harm. And that's where sustainability and circular economy came from. It's the idea we have to do less of the bad stuff, less of the just doing an exchange. When I met Jeffrey Hollander, I introduced him to these four. And the next one I introduced to in the top are a lot of what shifted his way of seeing. The third level people went to was saying, wait, and I started saying this 20 years ago, and I hear everybody saying it now, thank goodness, is less harm isn't enough. We can't just do less bad and arrested disorder. We have to do good. And that's the third level paradigm. And of course, I, Jeffrey was so excited. He said, really true. And he quit talking so much about arresting disorder and started talking about doing good. And I said to him what we said earlier, wait, whose definition of good? For the most part, do good is by people who think they know what's good for other people. That was the source of philanthropy a hundred years ago. We know what you heathens should do or uh, you folks in Africa who are burning down the planet, I mean, all out of kind of good intentions. So 
I, Jeffrey is sitting there. He says, all right, if, if that's not right, what is? And I said, what regeneration means, and I learned the, the idea from my grandfather was we quit deciding what other things need, and we give them the capacity, the capability, and particularly to express their own essence, their own way in the world, their own direction. And that's what regenerate life means. I can regenerate myself and I can help build your capability to do that for you. Now, we fall back and forth within those, but our intention is to work on ourselves so we can always say, what is that entity seeking for itself and how can I bring capability to that? Well, you're empowering people to have that. You're empowering people to find it. You're empowering people to seek it out and then to utilize it for good. Um, you know, and that, I think that regenerative life, the word regenerative means exactly that. It's consistent, just going to keep going. It's, um, you know, people have talked about Tesla and the regenerative machines that you know he worked on and the things that the patents that got thrown away that that energy is abundant everywhere and we could have right. been using it so carol you were influenced as you mentioned earlier heavily by your grandfather was half mohawk from mother's side and a quarter mohawk on your father's side uh, these indigenous ways of seeing and understanding the world from the inside before outside is what he said yeah and and how you live your life. Can you explain how we integrate the inner and the outer work together? I can, but I have to disagree with one thing you said first. Forgive me. I'm a contrarian. Okay. I don't empower people. I enable. enable. It's capability you build, not giving something. But anyway, all right. Okay. How you do that? The way my grandfather taught me is we were always in the field. He uh, was an educator for the uh, Farm Bureau after the Dust Bowl. In fact, I think through the Dust Bowl. He had his own farms. He, had, he raised pigs. He went to market. The way we worked was always in life creating something. Something needed to be delivered for others. And he would have me working on myself. What do you notice about yourself? What are you thinking? He taught me ideas like, are you thinking only about yourself or are you thinking about their life? So it was done simultaneously, but the core work always had to start with me being able to see my own inner working and how he, he had these things he called um, energy drains, uh, that they take away your energy, like uh, identifying with something and getting attached to it. It's very Buddhist in language, some of it. So what he was doing is saying the way you bring together the inner and the outer is you do it in the world. You don't go off somewhere. And, and you know, he said when we uh, and mostly this was young boys, he was telling stories about coming of age. We always have them trying to accomplish something, serve something, uh, learn something. And then we have them watch themselves while they do that. Because if we try and teach them intellectually what the inside is, there's nothing to apply it to. And if you aren't applying it in the moment, having to watch yourself while you do it, you can't get there. I call that working on value adding processes. So I don't do any training. I'm not a consultant. What we do is we 
select something uh, out of the strategic playing we do, a whole different way of doing that. And then the the company and natural work team set off to make that happen. And I meet with them every couple of weeks and introduce a way to watch themselves and watch what they're doing out there in the world. You So you keep those two connected. You don't separate it. You don't have training and then doing. You have doing uh, strategically imbued with your work on yourself. That's what I learned from my grandfather, do it in life. Well, it it seems so natural. Yet, uh, as you've said, people have tried to divide that, to have yeah. a training and then go do something. And you're saying, no, it's it's natural to do and learn from your doing. Um, and, I, and I agree with that uh, 100%. Now, you state that the principles enable us to extend through thought and action into a new territory while building our insights and past experiences. Very similar to what you just said. Yeah. If you could recap the seven first principles of regeneration framework for the listeners and how this will extend our thoughts and actions into new territories. So in other words, you've got seven frameworks. I know this is a lot to try and you know get in <laughs> in 40 minutes, but I think if you just give the listeners a, a little bit, a taste, they literally can go buy this book and yeah. understand a little bit more. So uh, I'm going to do this a story. Then it goes quickly. Okay. So my grandfather said, uh, the first thing you have to pay attention to is the whole. If you've started with the fragment, you're not looking at living systems. So a child, you don't look at them as their problems, what they're good at, all their grades. You look at what are they seeking to achieve in the world? And that was good when you were in a value adding process. Secondly, Every living entity, one of the ways you can see its whole is see, see essence. And that's a term I brought in later, but he was talking about your authentic self, your authentic soul, something that's not about you doing your personality, but you can do it of a life shit. Now, I don't call them water sheds, life shit, another story. Uh, ther- third, then you work on taking that whole and its own essence and say, what's potential for that essence to express itself in the world and what it's trying to realize. Now we've got the bridge of the seven. Those are the first three which are inner. We now have something called development. I have this whole child with their unique specific essence and the potential they have. Now we add development. And when we, my grandfather was working with me, he was constantly asking me, what was I trying to achieve? What was I trying to contribute? And then he would work on development of me in that specific context. Now we go to the last three, which are in the outer world. And this is so hard for Westerners to see, even those four three are hard. We see in fragments. But the fourth, uh, fifth, excuse me, of these seven is um, nested. The idea that every one of us are nested in a greater system. I'm nested in a family, in a neighborhood, and et cetera. Uh, but when I'm doing work, it's nested also. If we're going to market, like my grandfather was taking us to market, and I do this with companies, we look at what it's nested in. It's not linear. And then the next thing is overcoming uh, that after we've overcome kind of that flatland view, it's to start thinking notally. So my grandfather would always ask when we were 
working on seeing me it going to market and companies going to market, we would say, if we worked on one thing, core, that it would move everything else. And he didn't know about acupuncture, but I use that metaphor now. If you're going to put a needle somewhere that opens the system and everything moves, that's what nodal means. And I know you wanted me to talk about it anyway. So to add a phrase here is nodal is always the ability to understand the working of the system. And if you're going to intervene, if you're going to join, if you're going to add capability, ask yourself first, it's not what's priority because priority puts the mind in a different place than living that makes humans think about what they want to do. If we say what is nodal, we're now on six of those. And the last of the seven is a field, being able to build a field. We all know this when we walk into a party, we can feel the field at work, whether somebody was upset, a fight just happened, we can feel it in a company. So those are the seven and they're related. And there is an opposite for every one of them, which people will love in the book that helps you diagnose how we fall out of the seven. And we won't do those for now. Well, it is my next question because there's a yin and a yang to everything. And that's right. the way I kind of set this up before I created these questions. You know, you've you informed the listeners about the principles and there is always, like I say, a yin and a yang. Uh, to everything. And that would be the six internal obstacles, because in every one of those, there's an obstacle to regenerative life. Um, Real briefly, mention the six obstacles and how, more importantly, I think, if you want to tell it in a story or how you want to do it, how would you recommend moving beyond these obstacles? Because if you've given this, or do we live with the obstacles? Uh, we will have the obstacles with us our whole life. These are not actually the opposite of the principles, but they are the inner work we have to do to work with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is fabrication, where we make up things out of whole cloth. We all know this. We wake up someday and we're terrified of what's going on. If we slow down long enough, we could realize we're manufacturing what's going on and reinterpreting. And those come often from the second one which is identification. I get a dent of, and these are found in Buddhism. They're found in Hinduism. Socrates had them. So uh, I didn't create any of these. Um, All right. So identification is when we're in a group and we're afraid we're going to be rejected or we have a client, we're afraid we're going to get fired or we're in a nation, we're afraid we're going to, we don't like the way people are treating our country and our nationalism rises. We will tend to fabricate a lot to hold our story together. Uh, the next one is fear. Because when either of those things don't make sense, fear can take over. And fear really means we just something we don't know how to identify with. I, I have certain things happen and I have no idea what to do. That's really what fear is. The fourth one is waste, where instead of asking what's notable, what should we be working on, we're doing something that makes, no one thinks will make any difference, but we're busy. Uh, Sometimes movements do that in the country. Sometimes companies fill up everybody's work schedule. Sometimes people sit and gossip for hours. All of those are waste of energy. 
the next one is attachment, where we don't see the world as ever having changed. It's the way it was when I learned this thing. And I I was, you know, hear people say, well, we tried that and it didn't work. Or I had a guy say to me the other day about feedback when I t- was showing him all the damage feedback does and how it's, it doesn't work the way they thought. They did. He said, but I got one really good idea that I would never figure it out on my own if somebody hadn't told me. Well, first, that's not true. We don't even know what he was told is true. <laughs> and we don't know how much further he could have gone if he'd been taught to watch for himself. And the final and sixth one is solipsism. Uh, it's self-referential. I view everything in terms of how it affects me. Now, you ask how you work on these. Well, I run... Uh, communities where people learn to do that because it's very hard. You have uh, a world and a a matrix which is filled with invitations to fall into those. And there are a certain set of practices you can do. Meditation will help first thing in the morning, uh, morning, but you need meditation in life. And, you know, like my grandfather said, can you watch yourself while you're talking to this person that you're trying to sell something to? So, there is a, uh, I mean, I think the whole purpose of your show and all the people you invite on is how you work on learning to manage. And one, one trick, let me give people one trick. If you can catch yourself doing any of these, just watch it. And this is meditation in action, right? And then just release it without judgment with on yourself, with anyone else. If I say I'm noticing I'm really feeling put upon by that person, or I think they are uh, making me a victim. If I can catch me doing that, I can say, oh, okay, that's my victimizing self and let it go. So you're what you're referring to. I'm sure there's lots of terms for this, but um, you're an observer of self. Uh, We used to have a statement. If a video camera followed you around all day long and took video of you, and you watched back what you saw during the day. Um, what did you like? What didn't you like? What would you change? You know, how would you? How would you change it? You, you know? No, I would never do that. That makes it stronger. When you do like and dislike, you immediately deepen an attachment because. So there are five levels. Observing self is one. Then there is the ability to set aim so that we know what we're varying from. And then there's some more, which even language would be confusing. But I believe the way you do what you do with that self-observing is really important. And if you go do the what's right, wrong, I like, didn't like, you're in the old social. Okay. Okay. Sorry. No, that that makes sense. now, look, as you start to end this book, you get into the Regenerative Society Enneagram. Yeah. It's a big picture in the book. You mentioned that you've organized the roles into three groups of three in a framework, framework that you call this Regenerative Society Enneagram. Uh, again, in general terms, please speak with the listeners generally about these groups and why knowing about these groups can allow us to better identify our roles in society. All right, so one of the things we haven't said was I did this book with a research project. I involved 160 people who I gave them some education, some engagement, and had them go try in the world 
to change something they wanted to grow in regard to an aim they had. And then they came back and talked about they journaled a lot. But what all of them said, and this may be the summary statement, there are nine roles, which looks like if we can learn to play all of these in society, which were like parent, do them regeneratively, designer, educator, media content creator, and there were nine of them. If you can learn what the essence of those is, and we had everybody knowing how to play them, we have a society that worked because you would know when to step in them. You are not a media content creator. You are doing that right now. But when you're with your family, you may be doing parenting. And learning what is notable, what is needed at the moment was what this study was about and having the skill to do that. Yeah, and I, I, you know, as you've said, depending on this uh, indigenous belief, I think as you've been taught by your grandfather, many of these skills or opportunities to learn, you personally yourself, you carry these into life. And it's the experiences that we have in life that give us these learnings. And my show is about helping people understand those experiences, because sometimes you have them, you don't know exactly how to read them or understand them. Uh, And you're a good person for people to be going to and reading the kind of books you've written for people to do that. So this is a a good question for you. Um, If you were to leave these listeners today that have last listened to us now for the last 40 minutes, uh, with three takeaways that could transform their thinking, their beliefs, their subsequent actions, um, what would you impact them positively with that they could use to actually take away from the podcast? Okay, so first, I never answer that question because you can't, but I'm going to answer it the way I do, which is begin with joining a community that's working beyond the do-good paradigm. Find, and that's a very important step. Secondly, stay in it your whole life. I have members who've been with me for 42 years. And one of them is Jeffrey Hollander, who's been there 27. They're continuing to work with a philosophical stance that's working out of regeneration, not do good, which we have to get beyond, is a very important step. The third and last thing I would say is... uh, Apply it in your life because if you don't work on what you're learning with that community, it won't it won't get you anywhere. And having a we call it technology, mental technology, which can guide you, and having resources who can support you, that's your only chance. No one can do it alone. Carol, you know, I think for our listeners, probably of all the books that could have a great impact on them and your new one, the inner, it's direct work, inner direct work, right? No, inner, in, indirect work. Sorry. Indirect work, sorry, indirect. not inner. Uh, we want them to focus in on this one, the regenerative life. All of these books, I'm going to presume, are kind of standalone. Yeah, you can pick one up yep. or are they in sequence? No, there. Okay. If you go to my website, there's a page on books. If you pick, a, it'll tell you about all of them. You can pick where you want to start. There you go. So we're going to invite you back 
to do the indirect work. This was fascinating. And I think for all of my listeners, we'll have a link to Amazon to get the book. Also, if you want to learn more about Carol, you're just going to go to Carol Sanford, S-A-N-F-O-R-D.com. Beautiful website, lots of offerings, lots of books, resources, contact. She's got a, a second opinion page there as well. Uh, Carol, it's been a blessing having you on. Uh, namaste to you. Thank you for all the, just how you're spreading your message and how you're helping people and serving people. It really is of, of huge benefit. Thanks for that. You're welcome. And I always sign off with take risk. It's a lot more fun. I would agree with that 100%. Jump out of a plane if that's your next thing you want to do. <laughs> you take care. Have a beautiful Thank rest you. of your day. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again, and have a wonderful day.